and he said, Yeehaw, I got a pay raise. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. And I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Ulfstrom. In 1842, war between the Republic of Texas and Mexico reignited, leading to a series of disastrous invasions back and forth across the border. Today we look at the compelling story of the Mir expedition and the infamous Black Bean incident. But first, what's your favorite Texas dance hall? Well, I haven't been to a lot of them, but I'm going to go with the Texas Hall of Fame in Bryan, Texas. Uh, mostly because that's where I got to see Willie Nelson live. I'm going to go with Billy Bob's in Fort Worth, which is a famous uh, dance hall in Fort Worth. And it's in Fort Worth? Yeah, it is it, in it, Fort Worth. Where it's is in it? Stockyards in Fort Worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to say, I like Schrader Hall. It's a little-known hall. It's outside of Victoria, and it's the second oldest dance hall in Texas. And uh, it's air-conditioned, so it's wow. very nice in the Texas summertime. <laughs> Fancy. Despite the end of the Texas Revolution in 1836, in many ways the war continued for years afterward. Mexico's instability and continued hostility along the border would lead to tension which finally exploded into all-out war in 1842. On April 17, 1836, the military situation in Texas was very different than it had been even two days before. At San Jacinto, Sam Houston's Army of Rebels routed the Mexican troops under Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, commander-in-chief of all of Mexico's military. Hundreds had been killed, and even more were captured, including Santa Ana himself. This left General Vicente Filisola as the commander of all Mexican forces in Texas. He and his men were at Fort Bend, a couple of days' ride southeast from San Jacinto. Santa Ana soon sent him orders, at the behest of Sam Houston, to retreat beyond the Rio Grande. The other officers wanted to keep fighting, though, since they still outnumbered the Texans. Filisola argued that the Texans would then surely kill Santa Ana and the other 700 Mexican troops they'd captured. In his book Lone Star Nation, H.W. Brands makes the case that Filisola had known Santa Ana for a long time and knew he'd been down before and come back to power and popularity. He had a knack for charming and conniving his way out of tough spots. Filisola figured that it was better to do what his friend wanted him to do. Santa Ana could hold a grudge. The troops were also tired and demoralized, and supplies were getting harder and harder to come by. The Mexican army quit Texas, but Filasola got a tremendous amount of heat back home for his decision. Back in Mexico, prior to marching off to war in 1835, Santa Ana had handed off the government to his cronies. The news of Santa Ana's capture and the loss of Texas devastated Mexico politically, socially, and economically. The weak central government was unable to stabilize the economy or control the military. It got bad enough that the former dictator Anastasio Bustamante was asked to take over in 1837, but he didn't have much success getting things under control. The sorry state of Mexico's economy caused war to break out with France in 1838. Santa Ana was back in Mexico by this point, and he redeemed his reputation by fighting the French, losing a leg in the process. The Bustamante government proved to be as unstable as it had been before, and revolts, rebellions, and coups were breaking out all over Mexico. It should come as no surprise that Santa Ana was able to take over yet again in 1841. Through all this disruption, Mexico refused to recognize Texas's independence, but could do very little to take back its wayward province. Texas vacillated between trying to make peace with Mexico and making a nuisance of itself to Mexico, especially during the Lamar administration of 1839 through 1841. In 1840, the northern Mexican states of Coahuila, 
Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas revolted and formed the Republic of the Rio Grande, with Laredo as its capital. They had some support from the Republic of Texas. The revolt only lasted a few months before it collapsed, but it caused heartburn for the Mexican government. Around the same time, the southern state of Yucatan declared independence, and Texas also supported them, which did neither of them any favors with Mexico. And fighting was still going on in Texas. There were a number of naval battles throughout the Republic period. The Mexican army couldn't do much on the ground against Texas, but its navy could harass Texas shipping and the poorly equipped Texas navy. We've talked before about the disastrous Santa Fe expedition of 1841. The tumult in Mexico and continued fighting in Texas drew the attention of the Mexican government to the young republic, and it was only a matter of time before Santa Ana tried to get revenge. In March of 1842, the commander of Mexican troops on the Rio Grande, General Rafael Vasquez, led a force of about 700 cavalry across the river and occupied a little town named San Antonio that perhaps you've heard of. Mayor Juan Seguin, hero of the Texas Revolution, had tried to warn recently re-elected President Sam Houston a month earlier that he thought the Mexicans might be planning such an invasion. Due to the horrible economic situation in Texas, in large part due to the Santa Fe expedition, Houston was unable to provide any troops for San Antonio's defense. Seguin urged the people of the town to leave it as it was indefensible, and he retired to his ranch. Texas Rangers under Jack Hayes and Ben McCullough tried to put up a defense when Vasquez's troops arrived, but they were badly outnumbered. Deciding neither side needed another Alamo, Vasquez allowed the Texans to evacuate. The Texans took all the military stores and goods they could carry, then blew up or burned what they couldn't. Vasquez raised the Mexican flag over the Alamo and declared Mexican laws were in effect. Detachments from Vasquez's force also captured Refugio, Goliad, and Victoria without firing a single shot. During this time, Hayes' rangers were joined by over 700 militiamen from all over Texas. The force assembled just outside of San Antonio under the command of General Edwin Morehouse and General Alexander Somerville. Three companies of volunteers also fortified Austin under Vice President Edward Burleson, who then went down to take command of the main army. When Burleson decided to march into San Antonio a few days later, they found that Vasquez was already gone. He'd only stayed for two days. In the end, it seemed that Vasquez's incursion was just an elaborate raid, not really intended to take back any territory for Mexico. Seguin wound up getting blamed for the whole thing, even though he had warned everyone it would happen and was part of the force that went to retake the town. The Texas militia soon disbanded and returned to their homes, and once again, the only force defending the border was Jack Hayes' ranger company. Only a few families and businessmen returned to San Antonio, since the locals felt that the danger of a Mexican invasion still existed. Most of the rest of the Texas returned to the status quo. President Houston suspected there was something more going on than just a raid. He instructed Somerville to prepare a force that could strike back at Mexico in case it decided to invade again. It turned out that Houston was right. The Vasquez incursion was a probing action intended to see what Texas' response would be. There were also small raids in June across the Nueces that provoked little other response than being pushed back by the Rangers. In September 1842, Santa Ana ordered one of his top commanders, a French soldier of fortune named Adrian Wall, to advance again to San Antonio, this time with a force of over 1,400 troops. They slipped into Texas almost unnoticed and appeared at San Antonio in force. This time, a Tejano militia under Salvador Flores resisted the attack, but the, count, but the town couldn't be held, and Wall's forces drove them off after a sharp fight. Wall surprised the Republic's district court, which happened to be in session. 
The district judge, clerk, district attorney, and all but one member of the San Antonio Bar were captured, as well as all the other male Anglo citizens present. Fifty-five men in all were taken prisoner. Once again, the call for volunteers went out across the Republic. Jack Hayes and his rangers spread the word around that San Antonio was back in Mexican hands. Militia forces gathered outside the city, initially under Hayes and Colonel Matthew Old Paint Caldwell. Caldwell was a veteran of Gonzales and the war against the Comanches in 1840, as well as a signatory to the Declaration of Independence. After about a week, Caldwell and Hayes marched towards San Antonio with around 200 men. They intended to harass Wall's forces and try to reduce them piecemeal. The main body of the militia dug in at a crossing at Salado Creek between New Braunfels and San Antonio. Hayes took a troop of rangers up about 300 yards from the Alamo in order to get the Mexican forces' attention. They were successful. 200 of Wall's men took off in pursuit, soon followed by Wall himself, and another 800 men, including artillery. They met the Texan force at the creek and were unable to budge the Texas position for over two hours, taking heavy casualties. The Texans had only had a few men killed, a score wounded, including our friend Creed Taylor. Now Wall retreated to San Antonio and quickly abandoned the town. He headed for the Rio Grande and his 55 prisoners, as well as most of the Mexican families of San Antonio, in tow. While the battle was raging, a force of about 50 volunteers under Nicholas Dawson were headed to reinforce Caldwell. Wall detached several hundred cavalry troops to cut him off and prevent the Mexican army from being flanked. The outnumbered Texans were caught on a hill near what would become LaGrange, and they fought hard, but they were quickly pinned down and surrounded. They tried to surrender, but in the confusion of the battle, the white flag wasn't clearly seen, and the Mexican troops kept firing. Thirty-five Texans were killed, and the rest were captured. The dead bodies were left on the field, and Caldwell's men found them a few days later as they pursued Wall. The Dawson Massacre, as it was called, infuriated the Texans, and they were determined to catch Wall's force. They caught his rear guard again at the Arroyo Hondo Creek near what is now Pearsall, but the Texas forces were unable to win a clear victory on the battlefield. Wall's forces crossed back into Mexico a few days later. The prisoners from San Antonio, as well as the Dawson fight, were all marched to the infamous Perote Prison outside of Mexico City, more than 900 miles away. The invasion and the destruction of the Dawson Command infuriated Texans. Caldwell's force reached 500 men by the time Wall left Texas, but it quickly dissolved as about two-thirds of the men went home. The rest went to San Antonio, where they found Vice President Burleson had assembled 1,200 men to join the fight against Wall. Burleson gave a passionate speech about retaliating against Mexico, and sentiment in the state agreed that something must be done. On October 2nd, President Houston ordered General Somerville to organize an expedition to invade Mexico with the caveat that he only proceed if the conditions assured a reasonable chance of success. This caveat would be a major factor in the events that followed. Houston's motives are not entirely clear. At best, he appears to have looked at the expedition as a nuisance raid on Mexico along the same lines as the Vasquez and Wall incursions. At worst, he may have been trying to appease anti-Mexican sentiment in his government and to show the futility of attacking Mexico with its large standing army. Whatever the case, Somerville recruited 700 volunteers. These included a number of rangers and longtime residents, but also a lot of glory seekers freshly arrived from the U.S. Among the notables in the expedition were ranger legends Bigfoot Wallace, Ben and Henry McCullough, and Samuel Walker. Creed Taylor missed out on the expedition because he was still recovering from his wounds that he suffered at Salado Creek. In December 1842, they marched to Laredo, which was on the north side of the Rio Grande, but occupied by Mexico. They easily took it from the Mexican garrison. Somerville then took 500 men and crossed the border to take the Mexican town of Guerrero. 
At this point, Somerville was out of supplies, and after his men had sacked Laredo and Guerrero of everything of any kind of value, he knew there was going to be no support for his men from the local population. He decided that his orders made clear that he wasn't to proceed if he didn't have a reasonable chance of success, so he decided to return to Texas. Two-thirds of his men disagreed. Five captains chose to disobey their orders, and with 300 men, they kept marching toward the town of Mir. They selected William Fisher, who had briefly been the Secretary of War in the Young Republic, to be their new commander. Somerville took the other 200 men, including the McCulloch brothers, back to San Antonio. When the Texans reached Mir on Christmas Eve, they demanded the citizens provide them with supplies. What they got was a Mexican army of over 2,000 men who'd arrived just before them and fortified the town and surrounding area. The hungry Texans attacked anyway, sure that they could whip any Mexican army. The ensuing battle was vicious and brutal, with house-to-house fighting and attack and counterattack by both sides. Mexican losses were as high as 600 killed and 200 wounded against 30 Texans killed and wounded. As the Texans ran out of food and water, though, the fight left them. After two days of fighting, they surrendered. Only about 40 men who had been guarding the Texan camp escaped across the river to safety. The rest were marched south into Mexico. In early February, as they made their way south, several of the Texan prisoners staged a daring escape attempt 100 miles south of the city of Saltillo. They were organized by Ewan Cameron, a Scottish immigrant from Gonzales. 180 men, including Wallace and Walker, overpowered some of the guards and set out over the desert to go back home. They wandered around until the end of the month, but ultimately most of them were recaptured. Four men made it back home to Texas. The rest were taken to the city of Rancho Salado and learned that their escape had infuriated Santa Ana. He issued orders to execute everyone who tried to escape. Local governor Francisco Mejia refused to obey that order. Pressure from the American, British, and French ministers to Mexico caused Santa Ana to soften his position, and he instead ordered that only every tenth man would be executed. The garrison commander at Salado put 176 beans into a jar, 17 of them black, the rest white. All the prisoners were ordered to draw a bean from the jar, and those who drew black beans would face the firing squad. The first Texan to draw a black bean was Major James D. Koch, who held up a bean to show his comrades and brazenly said, Boys, I told you so. I never failed in my life to draw a prize. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. When all of the black beans were drawn, the men who drew them were allowed to write letters to their families and were taken out in two groups to be shot. Cameron drew a white bean, but not long after the executions, Santa Ana ordered him shot anyway for organizing the escape. When he was taken for execution, he declined the offer of a blindfold, declaring, For the liberty of Texas, you and Cameron can look death in the face. The rest of the men were taken to Mexico City, joining the other prisoners from the Battle of Mir who had not tried to escape. By September 1843, the survivors joined the rest of the Texas captives in Perote Prison. For nearly two more years, the Texas prisoners languished in prison, subjected to horrible conditions, abuse, and hard labor. Some managed to escape, others died, and still more, who were citizens of the United States or other countries, were released after pressure from their own governments. The American and British ambassadors kept up pressure on Mexico to let all of the prisoners go, and in 1844, the San Antonio and Mir prisoners were finally released. Three years later, as American forces invaded northern Mexico as part of the Mexican-American War, many of the survivors of the Mir expedition served as volunteers in the American Army. Captain John Dewsbury had drawn a white bean in 1843, and when the Army reached Rancho Salado, he arranged to exhume the bodies of his comrades who died there and transport them back to Texas. 
The remains of these men were placed, along with the remains of the dead from the Dawson Massacre, in a sandstone vault on a hill near the town of LaGrange, not far from the site of the battle. Over 1,000 people, including Sam Houston, gathered at a ceremony to inter these remains. Over the years, the site, which became known as Monument Hill, was maintained by the Kreisch family who owned the property and had a brewery nearby. The site was not kept up, though, and it deteriorated. In 1933, the Daughters of the Texas Revolution built a new tomb for the remains, and in 1936, the Centennial Commission erected a beautiful monument to the fallen soldiers. And it's a wonderful monument. Um, If you haven't been there, I suggest you check it out. Uh, We mentioned in a previous episode about the Centennial Monuments that uh, I went there as a kid when I was at summer camp. We took a hike out there, and, you know, I thought it was a beautiful monument, and, you know, it was a great piece of architecture, but I didn't understand the significance of it until we started to work on this uh, this episode. And, you know, I, it just occurred to me that somewhere buried in a box in my parents' house, there's probably a uh, Kodak disc camera negative with uh, my pictures of mm-hmm. the, the monument at Monument Hill. I, this, you know, there's a lot of great stories in Texas history, especially early Texas history, and this is one of the best, I think. Mm-hmm. I love the personality of of these early Texans that you see, especially the quotes that sort of live through the the ages of the guy who draws the black bean and says, "Boys, I, you know, I'm always a winner." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There was another one who, uh, who who drew a black bean and he gave his he gave the money that he had to his brother, his brother in law, or no, his cousin, uh, and he said, "Yeehaw, I got a pay raise." <laughs> uh, he later died in the prison, um, but the. Uh, I've I've been fascinated by this story for a long time. When I was a kid, I read this this book, the Texas History Movies, which is a series of comic strips that was in the Dallas Morning News in the 1920s and 30s. And this was one of the stories. And I've just always been fascinated by this story of this the black bean incident. And there's a famous, very famous Frederick Remington painting about drawing of the black beans. Yeah. And um, I, I just think it's, you know, we think that the, the, the San Jacinto, the Texas Revolution was over, and the fighting was over until the Mexican War. And, we, you know, from the Santa Fe expedition and from this, uh, we don't realize that, that the, the rancor and animosity between the two countries was still there. And it was very much a, uh, a state of war between those two countries that got hot and cold throughout the, that decade. Yeah, I mean, we tend to think it's like, all right, we won at San Jacinto, that's the end of it, but... You know, the revolutions and, you know, wars for independence are rarely that clean. Right. You know, it's like there's continued fighting. There, Like you said, there's animosity. There's all the chaos going on in Mexico. Oh, Because yeah. here, here was the giant army of Mexico that tried to go and, you know, keep the rebelling Texans, and they lost. And so that caused all sorts of problems back home. Well, and then they put Bustamante back in charge. Right. <laughs> it's like, we really hate this guy, but we need someone yeah. to take control. And meanwhile, you know, Santa Ana is such the comeback kid that he— he gets back in power, but you know they. It was the fighting in the other parts of the country of Mexico that actually kept them from coming back to Texas because some of them wanted just to just take everybody and go back up there and take it back. You know whether it be in sports or something else, like nobody likes to lose, and there's that feeling of you know we need to go back and take care of business, and it happened on our side as well, which yeah. is the hubris that led to the Santa yeah. Fe expedition well, I mean, and, and yeah. this expedition. Yeah, there was that. It's like we were saying earlier, you know, when they went into Mir and they were fighting door to door and all of that, the Texans knew they were outnumbered, but, you know, they were still high on the victory at San Jacinto where they had completely obliterated, right. you know, the superior sized 
Mexican army and they thought, oh, we can beat any, any well, army because we're Texans. Right. And, and at Salado Creek, 200 men had stopped 800 men, atta- or almost 1,000 men attacking them. But the, the, the mirror one is interesting, is really fascinating because, you know, think, oh, those numbers are blown up. There was, yeah, there's 300 Texans and 2,000 Mexicans and they didn't really kill 600. These are numbers from Mexico. Their, their leaders said, we lost 600 killed in this fight. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to start cheering when I say this, but you cannot overestimate the value of the Texas fighting man. Yeah. yeah. And that's, I mean, they were just, they were just wily old coots and they were just yeah. tough in a fight and, and ready to scrap. We were, you know, back to these, uh, but it goes back to the, the idea of these characters. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking about, um, don't ask me why my brain connected these, but I was thinking about that famous gold watch scene from uh, Pulp Fiction. And mm-hmm. you go, oh, these are these are fantastical lines written in these movies, like these really strange things. But then you read these historical things, you're saying, oh, stuff people say. It's like, oh, no. People, no, people, people yeah. really say stuff. People like really <laughs> say weird stuff. Combat does weird things to yeah. your brain. You know, Bigfoot Wallace had lost his brother at Goliad, and... He had said that he was, he was, I mean, this is not PC, but he was going to get his, he was going to get his payment back from the Mexicans for, for killing his brother. And he fought at San Jacinto. He fought and then he fought at Mir and he sat in prison for three years and he came back to Mexico in, in the Mexican American war late in life. He said, you know, do you think you got your, 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 your revenge, your, your payment? And he said, I think that debt's been paid. But it was that that rancor and that animosity between Texas and Mexico was still so raw. Yeah, and it was in spite of the poor economic conditions in the Republic of Texas yeah. at the time too. You know, it's like, and it, you know, one of the most prudent decisions that they made as a you know, governmentally speaking, was when Sam Houston was like, "Look, don't go traipsing across the border into Mexico if you don't think you can win, because we really can't afford to lose." Yeah. They they went in anyway, but. You know, that was a very statesmanlike decision. The thing with Sam Houston is, well, again, <laughs> Sam Houston, when, when Sam Houston tells you something, do it. Yeah. But it, it, I don't even know why, you know, when you read about Sam Houston and the interaction he had with people during the revolution, why he let these hotheads go off and even pretend like they had a chance at it. I, I mean, we look at it historically and say, well, maybe he was just letting them sort of march it off. You know, they were they were hot and ready to go. March down there. If you think you can pick off some guys, great. If not, come back. But he had to know somehow that there's a pretty good chance that these hotheads are going to go ahead and do it anyway. Interestingly, all of the captains who chose to disobey Somerville were political opponents of Houston. So there is something there of, like you said, Mike, of kind of he, he knew that he was pretty sure that they would do something. And the cynical perspective of it is that he let them go off into mexico to get them out of his hair that was part of it well but there's these groups i mean that there's sort of these two groups that we've seen in all of these historical texts you know in pre-revolution and post-revolution time of there's kind of two camps there's sort of those who are with sam houston and those who are against him yeah well and it kind of goes back to you know the ones that disobeyed somerville is like echoes back to when we were talking about the texas rangers and the sentiment that Texas fighting men could be led but not commanded. Right. You know, it's like it was a command, an order to return to Texas, you know, and you could maybe make the case that Somerville wasn't leading them as well as he could have to direct them in a more prudent course of action. Right. Their their blood was hot and their desire to exact revenge was greater than the 
the strength of his orders. Yeah, if you read the stuff that the McCulloch brothers, brothers said, they, they they left with Somerville not following orders, but they were just disgusted by the, the whole thing yeah. because of the the looting of Laredo and Guerrero. It was pretty ugly. And and Laredo, I mean, these people, they'd, they'd revolted against Mexico. They'd been, right. they'd been the capital of the Republic of Rio Grande. They didn't do anything wrong, but they were going in and clearing out their houses of everything. Yeah. So it wasn't, it's not the prettiest story for Texas. It's not the most ideal story. You know, it's kind of like the Santa Fe. They kind of went off and did their own thing and really paid a penalty. Now the 55 men who were taken from San Antonio, they're the real unsung victims of this because they were just sitting there. Yeah. And it disrupted Texas legal system completely. <laughs> you could make the argument that they were, you know, being the ultimate of good citizens of yeah. participating in the legal process. Yeah. Well, what I I wonder is, you know, from the historical point, you look back and say, is there is there a greater villain in history than Santa Ana? I mean, <laughs> well, yes, yes, but <laughs> Genghis Khan, and, and so, Hitler, is there, uh, is not quite. Is so there a bad. greater villain in Texas history than Santa mm, Ana? Not necessarily. No. I mean, but, here he was spinning off in his Tie Fighter after the Battle of San Jacinto, yeah. and he came back. Yeah, he came and back, he, to and power. he struck back. Well, at Texas. I want to know, I mean, you know, we live in an age of instant communication and we had all these news and things, but I have to wonder what other countries and what other world leaders thought of this guy in this country. They broke off from Spain. There was all of this stuff going on. And, you know, they were, a, they were a global country. And this guy, he's capturing citizens from other places He's ordering executions of just just kill them all, and then well, <laughs> let me loosen, the, let me just soften the blow, ten percent. Well, you know they were only 20, 30, 25 years from Napoleon, and from yeah. there was there was characters like him. He was certainly not like the czars of Russia, but he was a very charming person. I mean, he he charmed the socks out of a bunch of senators and and President Jackson and Houston in uh, in Washington when they sent him to Washington after San Jacinto and. They gave him a ship and sent him back to Mexico. So, you know, there was, he was, there's, there's, there's things to admire about Santa Ana in this, his political resiliency and his, his just absolute uh, combination of totally reprehensible, total political character and this homespun, modest, charming, I am here for the people of Mexico, and I love the people of Mexico. Read read the Brands book. There's a lot of stuff about Santa Ana uh, that is just fascinating. So he he is a great character. But yes, he is the ultimate bad guy in Texas history. You're absolutely right about that. Yeah, and I, I think it's also interesting that this, you know, the the Mirror Expedition and the Santa Fe Expedition, this whole period of, you know, the Republic of Texas period, is. You know, yeah, they won their independence, but they're struggling and fighting to mm-hmm. become a nation as opposed to just, you know, a group of people on the frontier. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of the struggle with Sam Houston and the the party that continued into Mexico is, you know, Houston kind of was trying to be, okay, we are a nation. We need to behave like a nation yeah. and, and not just go out for revenge when people come and attack us. Well, that's a great point. I mean, I think it's easy for people today to look back and go, well, Texas was its own country. But it, but, but it really was barely, mm-hmm. but it really struggled with its identity as a nation and tried to tried to live up to that. Yeah, this is only two years from the Linville raid, from the Great Raid that we talked about with, in the war with the Comanche, and they were fighting the Comanche the whole time. And then only two more, two to three more years later, the Mexican-American War happens. 
And so Texas had, it was a hard scrabble existence in Texas. It was very difficult and there was zero money. <laughs> so no money at all. None, none at all. Yeah. Cause this was before the explosion of the cattle industry and yeah. before the railroads, yeah, obviously. I, I mean, they, they were $10 million in debt in $1840, which is a lot of dollars today. A lot of dollars today <laughs> with no, no capability, no GDP possible to pay it back. That's the, that's the thing about Texas. And so, yeah, you're right. It's Texas was its own country. So I would yeah. think my takeaway from this whole thing would be that, you know, Santa Ana, bad guy, still a bad guy, still around. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. Exactly. Even just the people who are the foot soldiers or the volunteers of Texas, they all had so much character and integrity. And maybe it's just history doesn't carry over the story of the guy who cried when he pulled the black bean out. But like everybody <laughs> bravely hoisted the beans. But I like to think that there's something, that's the Texan that we identify with mm-hmm. as the modern Texan. That's right. the thing that we romanticize and idealize and say, gosh, you know, that's what it is to be Texan, is to just to stand up, always stand up when there's a fight and to take what's coming to you. And if and if it goes wrong, you you just Well, keep... You, d- you keep fighting until you can't fight anymore. And then you face your fate. You know, with, yeah, the, with your chin up. With and... dignity and pride. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast. Or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas Texas wants you anyway. anyway.